This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider. Recent economic data from China has both delighted and startled market participants and also commentators. With me to discuss some of the pieces of economic data and broader issues is Michael Power, investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town. The one that really hit me, I think it was on Monday of this week, Michael, was a 51.1% increase in imports. Now, is it because it's coming off a low base or is there a genuine momentum to the Chinese economy? Well, I think there's all sorts of things going on. I mean, it's quite clear that in the big picture, uh, given the way supply chains operate, and notwithstanding the talk of deglobalization and a uh, uh, breaking of this uh, this almost addiction that the United States has for China-made products, that China truly has become the factory of the world. Now, obviously, that's not an absolute, but it's it's a relative. But where traded goods are concerned, China seems to actually have uh, improved its standing, uh, notwithstanding all the, you know, in the time of Trump, uh, all, all, all the quotas and, uh, and taxes and, and interruptions. And even to some extent, this has been continued in the time of Biden. The fact of the matter, and we saw it as a, as a micro example, that um, Apple now has uh, deepened uh, its supply chain uh, dependency into China um, uh, shifting the, the number one position away from Taiwan to China. So I think what we're seeing here is China truly uh, exploiting uh, its position of being factory to the world. Do you believe that this is not just a restocking and a recalibration of what happened before the pandemic? Do you honestly believe that things have moved on from there and are on an inexorable upward trajectory? Yes, but I would say that there's been some add-ons. Number one has been that because of the recent increase in commodity prices, there's no doubt been some precautionary buying by uh, Chinese industrial consumers uh, so that they've got some commodities in stock. So that, to some extent, might have in itself uh, boosted the level of imports. On top of which, although, uh, to be honest, everybody always says, oh, but there's no consumption taking place in China, there's consumption taking place in China. Um, you know, we are definitely seeing a recovery of the consumer, maybe not in the same way um, as appears to be happening in, for instance, the United States, but that's in large part because China is not uh, 72% of its GDP um, geared to the consumer. So in the U.S., Basically, economic health is, is, is judged by the number of people sitting uh, in restaurants. Uh, in China, economic health is still judged by the number of people sitting in factories. I saw one statistic which may be irrelevant, but it's, it sort of sums things up for me in my simple way. IMAX, you know, the big screen cinema chain, is now seeing more consumers, more people sitting down and watching films on the big screen than it did before the, the pandemic. So if you sort of apply that to other industries, other shops, other restaurants, other bars, other nightclubs, and all sorts of other goods and services, perhaps there is a genuine recovery. And maybe it's all to do with the psyche. You know, they've managed the 
pandemic rather well, I think, through various means that couldn't be applied in the West. And maybe this is genuine. Maybe GDP is booming. Maybe PMI is rampant. I I don't know. What is your impression? Well, I'm going to ask you a trick question. So forewarned is forearmed. Here we go. But measured in nominal US dollars, by how much has Chinese GDP grown in the last year? Goodness me, Michael, you really did throw a curveball at me now. I've absolutely no well, idea. I don't answer, want to make a fool of myself. The that people would generally throw at you would be, oh, 7%. But that's, of course, real. Yes. So you have to add back inflation. So that's maybe 3 plus percent, say 4%. So we're at 10% now. you have now. to add the appreciation of the Remnimbi over the last year, which is another 8 9%. Right. So Chinese GDP measured in dollars, in nominal U.S. dollars, has grown close to 20% in the last year. That's astonishing. This is not something, this is not something that the vast majority of particularly U.S.-based analysts have actually grasped yet, partly because they live in what I call a world of dollar blindness. They can't really compute um, how the rest of the world has to deal with a, a moving dollar because the only thing that really matters to them is what's happening in either real or nominal U.S. dollars to U.S. GDP. Um, The fact of the matter is, and these are very broad brush terms, actually, that place you're sitting in at the moment, Europe has probably grown in nominal U.S. dollars by more than the United States over the last year because of the relative appreciation of the euro versus the dollar. Mm. Now, people cannot grasp this, but actually, companies live in the world let's just say in terms of how do they earn their revenue, of nominal U.S. dollars. And so the revenue pool that exists in China, measured in nominal U.S. dollars, has grown by 20% in the last year. It's very interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but I I think the currency factor is so important. I mean, whether it be at a sovereign level or a corporate level. Uh, For example, there's a a very well-known South African company which grew out of Stellenbosch but plies most of its trade outside of the borders of the Republic of South Africa. And when I read their results, they talk about several different currencies. And you have to be a chartered accountant and a currency trader all combined into one to work out what's really going. So what you're saying is all the crowing by the, the United States administration about how well they're doing actually pales into insignificance when you take the currency factor in in China and Europe and maybe a few other places as well. Well, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, one might even go so far as to argue that if the US has grown in nominal dollars by eight or nine percent over the last year, measured in either euros or renminbi, it's not grown at all. Hmm. Very interesting. What do you make of commodities? Because you, you mentioned it. When I saw the headline coming up about a 50% plus increase in imports, people said, well, it's to do with the commodity prices. And I didn't realize what that actually meant. But now I understand what you're saying. But also what I found very, very interesting is that the Chinese authorities tried to clamp down or rather tried to suppress the rise of, in commodity prices. And I use the example, and I've used it a couple of times, but I make no apology for using it again with you, is that when Paul Volcker used to be the chair of the US Federal Reserve, he used to slow the decline of the US dollar or try to by just saying, no, it's gone too far. But uh, really, deep down, when he sat down at home and put his feet up, he knew that the dollar was only going one way. And I think 
in my simple mind, that the, the Chinese authorities know that commodities are going up, know that demand is recovering in that particular country, and um, they just want to slow it down and slow speculation. Is that too simplistic an argument? No, it's not at all. I think there are a number of uh, cross-currents also running here. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I, I invented a word called the lycocuneals. Um, that's lithium, uh, cobalt, copper, nickel, and aluminium. These five, and you might now add platinum to that, yeah. creating a new word which I haven't worked out yet, are the metals that are absolutely going to do well in the world of renewable energy. So there are some secular trends at work here uh, that are being superimposed on a cyclical recovery. Um, and I think, obviously, with the added advantage that once things start to move, then the speculators start to move in and try and front run the prices. So there's that, too. Um, I also think that in the back of everyone's minds uh, is the idea that the West uh, is going to use uh, infrastructure spend, both in Europe and uh, the United States, as part of the way in which they're going to try and dig themselves out of their various holes at the moment. So that also uh, requires uh, almost a secular demand for commodities, at least for a three to five year period. So you've got these these cross currents running out there at the moment uh, and leaving aside just what would probably be a post-COVID normal recovery, cyclical recovery in commodity demand. You've got these other factors at play. And I think that's what's doing it. On top of which, if I can go back to where we started, the currency factor. The yes. fact is that the Chinese and, and, and the Europeans are richer in terms of what can their currencies buy. Um, so in a sense... Uh, the real costs of commodities um, has fallen. Of course, if they've gone up by more than 10% in both instances, uh, the costs of commodities um, has, has, has risen. But they can afford them at the margin to a greater degree than an American buyer can. Um, so there's enormous tug of war going out there at the moment for the for the commodities that are, are there. Obviously, we've been through a period of, I don't know, probably post-2008, where capex in the in the in the in the commodity sector has has not been uh, particularly strong, particularly notable, for instance, in oil, but also interestingly, and this is a separate issue in gold, but but in most areas, possibly with the exception of a couple like cobalt and lithium, um, there hasn't been much capex in the last decade. So uh, you know you've got a, a tight uh, contingent supply as well as tight actual supply, uh, and you put things on top of that. Uh, that I've just talked about, and and it's not surprising to some extent that you get um, this this uh, this bounce in prices. I don't want to turn this into a political debate, but I remember when President Xi was hosted at Mar-a-Lago by the previous U.S. President Donald J. Trump, and Mr. Trump, in his own special way, talked about how how they enjoyed chocolate cake at the end of the, the meal. I don't think Biden's much of a chocolate cake man, metaphorically and literally. Do you think that his style of presidency is going to improve or on, on relations between the two countries or deteriorate them? Um, I'm not sure, but I would say this. The Chinese are going to know where they stand to a far greater degree. They're not going to be dealing with someone who's quite so mercurial uh, as the previous occupant of the White House who can believe, you know, red is red is one day and red is blue the next, uh, and then red is red the third day. Um, you will have more consistency of policy uh, from Biden. However, I think you'll probably find, in a way, and, and there's just bipartisan bill that's just gone through uh, Congress, 
um, you'll find in a way that there's actually a toughening of the American stance towards China. Um, it won't be mercurial, but it will be tough. Are you still bullish of China, despite the fact that it's maybe run a little bit too hard, too fast, because people were loading up and they're restocking the I reference? Do you think this has got a genuine momentum? Is it? Are we in a China super cycle? Oh, I think so, although there will be bumps along the way. I think what you can say is that come 2025, it's going to be touch and go as to whether the US or China is the largest economy. Uh, and in those inter intervening you know, four years, we actually have to watch the currency and the catch-up. Um, this is this is the 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 almost the magic uh, ingredient which everybody always forgets. Um, but uh, for many of the years in the in the noughties uh, earlier this century, uh, China managed because of currency, in addition to what it was doing, as it were, naturally, uh, to grow at 16, 17, 18 percent a year. And you have three years of that. And that's a huge amount of increase in the size of your 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 economy. They blew past Japan. They blew past Germany, as you remember. Yes. Um, and uh, it was it was, you know, I think we've just got to understand that there's something secular. The issue, uh, which is probably going to come to the fore as a result of the G7 meeting coming up, is that um, I think the uh, the core of the West, um, Europe, United States, with Japan as an honorary member, although I think the Japanese have been wise to this for some time, um, are starting to wake up to the fact that there is an enormous, very fast-traveling, multi-truck machine coming down the motorway. And just because it's big doesn't mean it isn't fast. And the way things are going at the moment, they're going to be quite soon eclipsed economically by China. And so I think that is going to create geopolitical tensions. It's already doing so. All sorts of things beginning to happen. Uh, there's this new narrative, which Anthony Blinken is very fond of, called the rules-based order. Um, and any violations by China of that are called out. Um, forget the fact that China had nothing to do with the creation of the rules in the first place. Um, you've broken them because you've broken them not because you signed up to them or helped create them, just you broken them. And so there is some tension starting to build, geopolitical tension. I mean, the Taiwan Strait may even be mentioned by name in the G7 meeting coming up this week. So I think that the, 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 the East versus West, and particularly uh, uh, East centered on China, with poor old ASEAN sort of caught as a piggy in the middle in, in all of this, that tension is going to start increasing. Put all this together, politics, geopolitics, economic growth, and a sort of a diversion from one geography to towards China or away from China, whatever happens, you know what I'm talking about. And also the opening up of markets to Western investors and Chinese markets to Western investors. If you're a serious investor, a serious global investor, can you ignore China? Well, just follow the example of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and pretty much every other investment bank out of the United States. They're tripping over themselves to expand, expand their businesses across every aspect that they're allowed into in China, from asset management to uh, IPOs to... Um, and so if, if, if they're anything to go by uh, and if they're any example to follow, I think um, you know they've all essentially decided that, that, that this is not a, um, a small affair. Uh, this is a big affair, and they need to be at the front of it, regardless, uh, potentially, of being caught in the crossfire, geopolitical crossfire. As I said before, uh, isn't it amazing that Apple is uh, is actually extending uh, 
the size of its reach into the industrial heartland of China, uh, even in an age when everybody is being anti-China and talking about these supply chains and and saying you need to outsource or return to a U.S. or or go to Vietnam or at least don't concentrate on China, it ain't happening. And I think that it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to stop this juggernaut. Michael Powell, thank you very much for your time, your insight, your wisdom. That's Michael Powell, who's an investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town.